Radio. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible, and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. Welcome back, everybody. Sorry it has been so long. I appreciate everybody being patient with me, like always. That's why MC Nation is the best group of listeners ever. They know that I'm trying my hardest to bring good, solid content, and with the death of John Dillinger, sometimes that is hard to do. There's a lot of research involved, and it's not just research for one side of the argument. I'm trying to research for both. So I appreciate everybody being super patient. Before we get going on this episode, I do have to thank some new Patreon subscribers. We have Rick Stowell, Gary Jones, Beth, Ethan Barrow, Terry White, Mark Stevens, Laura Lee Murray, Sonia Rope Dancer, of course, my cousin Natalie. I freaking told her, I was like, dude, just give me your email and I'll send you episodes. She's like, oh no, it's it's cool. But <laughs> she's only on the $2 tier, so I'm going to send her the, the full-length ones for free. But anyway, thank you all so much for the donations. I greatly appreciate them. Um, as you guys know, we put two minis and one full-length episode a month on Patreon. And we actually added even more content. So I'm addicted to reaction videos on YouTube. It is literally my guilty pleasure. I don't care if they're reacting to movies, music. It doesn't fucking matter. I love it. I, it's my guilty pleasure. I watch them all the time. But what I did was... Me and Lindsay, one of my Patreon uh, researchers, what we do is we sit down, we have a few beers, and we actually react to true crime documentaries now, and we put those up on the Patreon feed as well, the videos. So you're actually watching the true crime doc with us while we're kind of discussing it and throwing around theories and stuff like that. $5 up tier gets the actual video, and the $2 tier gets the, the audio. So, with that being said, though, too, everybody in that $10 tier, please get a hold of me for those video calls. Uh, you can message the podcast on social media, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, doesn't matter. Or you can just send me an email, justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. We'll get a schedule worked out, you know, for a weekend, or depending on what time zone you're in, we can even do through the week. So just please get a hold of me so I can fulfill those obligations. Um, I actually just recently learned that people can send messages on Patreon, so I am sorry if you have contacted me through there and I did not see the message. So like I said, $10, $10 Patreon subscribers, please get a hold of me. Let's, let's have a video chat, you know, that's uh, one of the perks. All right, so in this episode, we're going to, um, we're kind of going to move forward in time. What we're going to talk about, the first part of the episode, is the new interest in John Dillinger and why they wanted to exhume him. We're going to talk about all that. As you guys know, 
Long-time listeners, I had a little brief, somewhat involvement in the History Channel documentary that was going to be made. So, you know, I kind of knew what was going on while it was happening. At the same time, I was still only on a need-to-know basis. I wasn't involved to an extent where it was 100% guaranteed, but I still was given some information. We're going to talk about that for a little bit. Then we're going to talk about the autopsy and the autopsy report because I do have a copy of that. And in part three, I'm actually going to bring you guys some interviews with some medical professionals because one of the huge arguments for the person not being John Dillinger, who was shot at the biograph in 34, is the heart conditions, some of the scarring, some of the the hairline, eyebrows, I mean, it, they they nitpick through all these things. So I've taken this time, like the last, I don't know, five weeks or something, however long it's been, and I've kind of gone through that, and I've looked at all these different tiny little minute things, and we're going to be discussing some of that stuff. Like I said, uh, I wanted to get this episode out before I bring you the ep- the uh, interviews in part three, just so you guys have something to kind of marinate on, to think about for yourselves, or even look into yourselves, because I know some of my listeners are medical professionals, so it'll give you guys, you guys can even get a hold of me after I go through the autopsy report, and if you want to be interviewed on the podcast, please, by all means, get a hold of me and let me know what you think, give me your professional opinions, only if you have like some serious credentials, though. But I do have to state some sources real quick before we get going. We have an Indie Star article, August 2nd, 2019, written by Holly Hayes and Don Mitchell. We have an Indie Star article, August 14th, 2019. And we're also going to talk about some inconsistencies with what the FBI says compared to what actually might have happened, along with some differences in what the FBI says through the course of the years. So... Uh, We have abc7chicago.com. We have page three of the Chicago Tribune from July 23rd, 1934, which was an interview with Edgar Alamond, which is probably the only civilian witness that ever did an interview on the death of John Dillinger. He was in the alleyway when Dillinger got shot. We'll uh, see what he had to say about what he experienced and saw. And um, I actually have audio of his interview from 1934, which is absolutely amazing. That audio and video comes from Moving Image Research Collection from the University of South Carolina. It was originally from the Fox Movie Tone News. We also have WTHR.com, an article by Kevin Rader from late December of 2019. We also have the official autopsy report. I know that was a long intro, had to get all that out, it's been a minute. So, sit back and relax, get yourself a cold one or a warm one, whatever your preference is. I hope you enjoy The Death of John Dillinger, Part 2. Alright, so to get this episode going, why was there all this renewed interest in John Dillinger and the whole conspiracy that he might have lived that came around in 2019? 
Well, what happened was in June 2018, a guy named Shane Williams, he has the property adjacent to the Dillinger home that is in Mooresville. He finds a bell jar, all right, and apparently it was found by an investigative team, which I'm pretty sure a dude named Stuart Fillmore, ex-FBI, was part of that. Not 100%, but I'm pretty fucking sure. Uh, But anyway, because he was one of the guys that I would talk to about this when we were talking about the History Channel documentary. So when they opened up the jar, it had a map in it. It had a 1934 Shell Oil roadmap, and there was some stuff written on this map. It was marked with lines, locations, and some dates. And some of those dates come after John Dillinger's death. Now, my whole thing... Okay, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Anybody from the Midwest that lives in a small town, I'm from northern Indiana, so here's the deal. We have these things called Uncle Larry's Roadmaps, and uh, these maps show county roads, little dirt roads. They show every tiny little road that is not basically main highway or interstate. Um, it's for fishermen and, you know, those those good old boys. Now, I will say this, just because there are some dates that are after John Dillinger's death really doesn't mean anything to me, because as a person familiar with these maps, I know that they come out the previous year, usually in November or December, sometimes October, so you can get a 1934 Shell Oil road map in 1933 if it's like November or December, so that's not really like a huge thing. And another point that we have to make, we all know that John Dillinger meticulously planned everything. He planned it down to a T. They would run their routes like their escape routes a hundred times over. This dude was a planner. So there's no reason to think that, you know, in early 1934, he was planning shit ahead of time. There is nothing in my mind that makes me think that is crazy. Like, that's probably what he did all the time. I mean, let's let's be realistic here. John Dillinger was only on the run for like 18 months or so. You know what I mean? After getting released from prison. So, yeah. It's totally feasible that he had uh, acquired one of these maps before 1934, like a month or two. I'm not saying like early 1933 or some shit, but at the end of 1933 and was planning shit ahead of time, which he was. So according to Shane, the map could be train routes for future heists or places where he might have buried potential treasure. It could be rendezvous points with some people or individuals that the family and people don't know about. It was also possibly written in indelible ink, which means he had to actually lick the pen to activate the ink and write on the map. It was the precursor to the ballpoint pen. And like I just explained to you, these roadmaps do not come out at the at the beginning of the year, they come out at the end of the previous year, and the fact that they're dated ahead really doesn't mean shit to me, all right? So they believed that they had handwriting and DNA samples, which, yeah, they probably did. And this is why they were hoping to partner with university researchers to determine the authenticity of their find, which is absolutely great. I mean, it's a John Dillinger artifact. That is awesome. 
But at the same time, just because there are dates after his death <laughs> does not prove that he lived past July 22nd, 1934. So just to be, you know, straightforward with you guys as listeners, trust me, I am one of these people who wants him to live past 1934, all right, because that would be wild. But at the same time, we have to think about this logically. So like I said, Dillinger was shot and killed on July 22nd, 1934 in Chicago, but some of the dates on the map are dated after his death. And this is what kind of fueled the conspiracy debate about when he died and if he actually died at the biograph. Shane said, I am not a conspiracy person, but it is possible it's feeding into that narrative. Some of the area has never been disturbed since the Dillinger era. Understandably so, it's farmland. He also goes on to say, Now you are wondering if there is anything else out there I acquired. That's correct. I'm wondering if there is anything more where that was or in areas we couldn't get into because of the woods. Now listen to me. I gotta reiterate this fact. I am one of those people who wants John Dillinger to live. I am an Indiana boy. This dude is a legend. He's a folk hero here. Okay, lots of history, lots of stuff. But at the same time, we have to look at this logically. Just because they found shit that had dates ahead of time from when he died, like after July 22nd, 1934, that does not mean that he came back to the farm and got this map and was planning other shit after his supposed death. John Dillinger was way smarter than that. Was he cocky? Absolutely. But if he had supposedly died in Chicago, he would probably not be on the farm where there's an entire fucking county of people who is going to recognize this guy. That and the fact, he was a meticulous planner. He planned everything ahead of time. Just because they found this does not really mean shit. Now, according to Jeff Scalf, who is John Dillinger's great nephew, he says that Dillinger actually planned on leaving that week. He was going to South America. He had one more job to do. It was a train robbery, and he was going to be heading to South America, and his plan was to take his entire family. Now, as of July 2021, this is the last update I've seen on it, they are still trying to authenticate the map, the writing, and the DNA that is possibly on that pen. Here's the deal. Even if they confirm all that shit, that does not mean that he lived past July 22nd, 1934. So sometime before mid-September 2018, the family members obtained a permit to exhume Dillinger's body. Now, according to the Indiana State Department of Health and a History Channel spokeswoman, they confirmed to the Indy Star that the exhumation was part of a forthcoming documentary. Now, in July of 2019, the Indiana State Department of Health granted Dillinger's nephew, Michael C. Thompson, a permit to exhume the bank robber's body. The History Channel later confirmed the proposed exhumation would be part of the documentary project, and uh, that permit granted permission for the exhumation and reinterment sometime before September 16th. Now, for those of you interested, if you want to email me or just if you're in the Facebook group or something, just make a post 
give me your email. I will literally send you the disinterment affidavit that they did in 2019. I'll send you the whole damn thing. It's pretty boring to read. They state some of their reasons why they have evidence and some of the evidence to suggest that it's not him buried there. So, I mean, it's kind of an interesting read, kind of boring, but I do have the actual PDF of the uh, the disinterment affidavit papers. So, the plans for his exhumation that obviously caused a lot of debate within the Dillinger family. Like I have stated actually in the first three episodes I did, along with part one, uh, the family's kind of divided, like right down the middle. You have the half that is like, yeah, it's definitely not him. You have the other half that is like, yeah, it's fucking him just leave him alone so there is debate there within the family itself as we know the the fbi doesn't really release statements relating to old cases like this especially john dillinger they've always been pretty mum about this shit so they released a statement confirming that they had in fact killed dillinger and they said they had a wealth of information that supported Dillinger's demise. Here's the deal. They really haven't provided any information. They have an autopsy report, and they said that, uh, you know, his fingerprints is how they identified the guy. We'll get to that a little bit later in this episode. So after Dillinger was shot on July 24th, 1934, two days after the shooting, Dillinger's body was returned to Mooresville, Indiana in a wicker basket. The body was taken to Harvey Funeral Home from Chicago. And we also have to keep in mind that uh, by the end of Dillinger's career, like when he was killed, uh, his appearance had changed quite a bit. He had dyed his hair, plucked his eyebrows into a thinner line. He wore a mustache, had plastic surgery, and had his fingerprints removed with acid. Now, the FBI claims that they had over 300 points of similarities on his fingerprints. I don't know how the fuck they did that if he had removed them with acid, but that's their main form of identification on Dillinger. And we have to bring up again that Dillinger's plastic surgery was not that extensive. As a matter of fact, when he got it and he was there, he said he wanted to shoot the doctor because he didn't look any different. I mean, he had the cleft in his chin kind of filled in a little bit and uh, had a mole removed. Not really much other than that. Now, why is the indie star so invested in John Dillinger. Well, he was originally from Indianapolis. Mooresville is just outside of Indianapolis. But Emil Winotka was not the only person to receive a supposed letter from John H. Dillinger after the time of his death. In 1965, the Indianapolis News received a six-page letter that was signed John H. Dillinger that claimed he was still alive and living in California. He sent along a current photo of himself for comparison. The writer went into great detail on Dillinger's background, contended the FBI shot the wrong man in Chicago. Now his claim, which is way contradicted by other witnesses and the autopsy, that the uh, man buried did not have a scar on his left leg, which Dillinger received in a shootout with FBI agents. And at the end of the episode, I'm going to read you the autopsy report. Trust me, it's only like three pages. 
And that's why I'm doing it at the end. If you don't want to sit through it, you can just end the episode. But he did, and it's confirmed in the autopsy report. He also cited physical differences between the corpse and the bank robber, including eye color, eyebrow shape, a scar on Dillinger's upper lip that apparently did not appear on the corpse. And then we have J. Robert Nash, who said that Dillinger had swapped places with the man named Jimmy Lawrence after Dillinger found out that he was going to be betrayed or somebody was was going to double-cross him. So, of course, everybody said the best way to settle this whole debate would be to just exhume the body and conduct DNA testing. This is why the family was hoping to just have all these questions answered in September when he was supposed to be disinterred, like in uh, 2019, originally. But Crown Hill Cemetery, where John Dillinger is buried, was pretty adamant that they didn't want any of this to happen. On August 14th, 2019, Crown Hill released a statement objecting to plans to exhume the body. They said the cemetery has a duty to protect the integrity of the cemetery. Cemetery management said in a written statement, We also have concerns that the complex and commercial nature of his exhumation could cause disruption to the peaceful tranquility of the cemetery and those who are visiting to remember their loved ones. I will say this, I have been to Crown Hill Cemetery, and it is hands down one of the biggest and most absolutely beautiful cemeteries I have ever seen. Like, for those of you who are around the area and want to make the trip to, to visit Dillinger's grave, if you're an enthusiast like I am, highly, highly suggest it. It is an amazing cemetery. It's just really, really gorgeous. But we also have to state the fact here that the only real graves that they're going to be disturbing are those of the Dillinger family themselves because there is a family plot. Dillinger's is kind of right on the end. Now, I will say this because of the way he was buried with all the concrete and like steel rods and shit. Not gonna lie, man, that would be a crazy effort like it would take a lot to get that shit out of there and then you have to worry about chipping away all this concrete and shit and then crown hill brought up the fact that there are other members of the john dillinger family who did not want the exhumation to happen one of which would be jeff scalf which i had mentioned earlier is dillinger's great nephew he told the indy star that he was very pleased with the history channel's decision to drop out of the project and that the project was being done for the wrong reasons he said it's my opinion that this effort was done for 15 minutes of fame and 30 pieces of silver and he also said that the possible continued efforts by producers or family members to exhume the body and share photo or video of it would be repugnant and indecent. In all honesty, all they're going to do is literally videotape a fucking backhoe, digging a hole, and bringing up a slab of concrete. Dude, they're not gonna, like, videotape everybody opening up the fucking coffin and viewing a skeleton and shit. I mean, let's be... Let's be honest here, and I will talk about the History Channel dropping out here in a minute. So, Scalf went on to talk about the night at the morgue, and he is actually very, very right about this. He says, it was rushed. It was a very hectic night. John was a legendary figure, and so I think there were some mistakes made. 
When I was younger, I wanted to believe that he got away, that it wasn't him, but it was him. Now, the family, uh, Michael C. Thompson and that part of the family that wanted the exhumation to happen, they tried going through court a couple more times, but at the end of the day, the cemetery shut it down, and then a Marion County judge finally shut down the exhumation for good. Now, here's what I was told happened by one of the producers of this said documentary. I got a phone call one night basically saying that the History Channel had dropped out of the project. And the reason that the History Channel dropped out of the project was because the cemetery had denied the exhumation when they supposedly, according to him, had previously gave it a green light. Now, here's the deal. The cemetery is the last stop. If the cemetery would have given it a green light, it would have been a go. So I don't know how much of that is true. And unfortunately, I have no proof of this because it was through a phone call. But I was also told that the reason the cemetery did not go through with this and denied it is because they got a visit from the FBI and basically said, it would be in your best interest to deny this exhumation. And then before they left, they gave a card to their lawyer if they wanted to fight it in court. And then they confiscated all the paperwork related to the death of John Dillinger. Whether that's true or not, I have no idea. That's just what I was told from some dude at a production company on the West Coast. All right. I have no qualms about saying that. Whether I believe him or not, I don't know. Like I said, that's just what I was told. So you can take a little food for thought there. And to be honest with you, like if this would have been like 19, honestly, if this would have been while Hoover was still alive, it would be way more believable. But let's be honest. How trustworthy and effective is the FBI at this point in time in 2022? You know, <laughs> I'll be honest, I'm a member of the Case Breakers now. And there's a lot of retired FBI that uh, are also members, so I don't want to offend them because I'm not going to generalize an entire agency. That's just ridiculously ignorant. But some of the shit the FBI has let slide because of political reasons or somebody has money or status, you know, how trustworthy is the FBI? Do I put it past them? Absolutely not. But do I think that actually happened? I don't know. I really can't say. That's just what I was told. So while we're on the topic of the FBI, let's talk about J. Edgar Hoover a little bit. And I also have to state a couple more sources. Obviously, J. Robert Nash, who wrote the Dillinger Dossier and Dillinger Dead or Alive. So, according to J. Robert Nash, J. Edgar Hoover did not like the publication of the book that insisted agents never killed John Dillinger in 1934. And obviously, J. Edgar Hoover was an egomaniac. I've talked about him numerous times, and I'm just not a fan. So, according to Nash, he actually wrote a letter to J. Edgar Hoover in 1968 and told him that he was investigating all of this, and this is when the investigation started. Like I said, Nash did this shit for like 15 years. It's insane. So Hoover was asked to supply information on the Dillinger case, and his personally signed answer was sent to the magazine that Nash worked for at the time in Chicago, and it was dated April 29, 1968, and it stated, In response to your request, the heavy pressure of our official duties at the present time 
precludes cooperating with you in connection with the story you are writing. I regret that it will not be possible to be of help to you. Then, when all the reviews came out for the book Dillinger Dead or Alive, because that was the first big one, all these reviews started coming in and all these, uh, you know, magazines and fucking newspapers and everything like that. And this was two years later in 1970. Hoover found time (laughs) to address this, okay? So there was a review, a really good review of this book that showed up in the National Observer. This was the only public response that J. Edgar Hoover made to this initial Dillinger book, the first one, Dillinger Dead or Alive. Hoover was madder than fuck, all right? And on August 10th, 1970, Hoover wrote to the editor of the National Observer, and here's what he said. Daniel St. Alban Green's review of the book Dillinger Dead or Alive, which appeared in the July 27, 1970 issue of your newspaper, has been brought to my attention. And quite frankly, I am surprised that a publication of the caliber of the National Observer would carry a review advancing the absurdities and falsehoods of this book. There is no truth whatsoever to the assertion that John Dillinger was not killed by special agents of the FBI on July 2nd. He misprinted. It was actually July 22nd. And I can assure you that this fact was substantiated through fingerprints. The many other inaccuracies, fabrications, and outrageous claims used to discredit the FBI and promote the book's fantastic theme certainly remove this work from serious consideration as responsible writing. It will indeed be unfortunate if any of your readers were led to believe that Dillinger Dead or Alive is anything but shoddy sensationalism. Signed, J. Edgar Hoover, Director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Washington, D.C. So, as you can see, dude was pretty fucking mad. Not only that, but Hoover sent an agent to the magazine that Nash worked at and basically talked to Nash's boss. And the day before the book was published, Nash was told if he went on tour to promote the book, he would be fired. And he ended up going on tour to promote that book, and he lost his job because of it. And then, J. Edgar Hoover banned all of his agents from reading this book. Pretty interesting, right? So Nash, he goes and he writes an open letter to the publisher with a bunch of questions. And this is basically aimed at J. Edgar Hoover. And here's the questions. One, how was the body identified through fingerprints? Dr. Charles Parker, Cook County Morgue Assistant, who received the body at 11.10 p.m. on the 22nd, testified he stayed with the body until the morning of the 23rd. He saw nobody take fingerprints or make any kind of ID of the dead guy. Also, he had his fingerprints removed with acid. Now, judging by part one, J. Robert Nash also claims that the fingerprints were taken at the scene supposedly taken at the scene. What J. Robert Nash says is that Martin Zarkovich already had his fingerprints on a Chicago Police Department card, and then Melvin Purvis just basically signed it as the FBI, and that's what was accepted as the fingerprints. So he actually kind of contradicts himself here. Now, I will say this. This was before the publication of the Dillinger dossier. 
So he had not gotten that far in the research. So I will say that. Now he does have a great point with his fingerprints being removed with acid. Now I will say this. The fingerprints could have been taken before the body even got to the morgue. And this is actually what they say happened. So the fact that Dr. Charles Parker, who was the Cook County morgue assistant, didn't see anybody taking fingerprints really is is not that big of deal to me personally because they could have been taken at the scene. They could have been taken in the uh, ambulance. There's so many scenarios there. I try not to feed into that too much. Here's the second question that he asked. The victim of the biograph shooting was wearing prescription glasses. Dillinger supposedly had perfect eyesight. Now, let's bring up the fact that Dillinger was 31 years old. He had been on the run for 18 months. He had done nine and a half years in prison. Is it so crazy to think that his eyesight could have gotten worse over time and he could have needed them at that point? That is not out of the realm of possibilities at all. So personally, I look at that as like a kind of a minute detail, really. I don't know who said John Dillinger had perfect eyesight or when they said he had perfect eyesight because when he was 20 years old, you know, or he was a young, younger guy when he signed up for the Navy. Yeah, he might have had 20-20 vision, you know, while he was in prison. Yeah, might have had 20-20 vision. But Dillinger was 31 years old when he was supposedly killed. Uh, his eyesight could have gotten worse over time, or at least he would have required like reading glasses or something to watch, uh, you know, like a movie with. So not really a huge deal to me. And then we have number three, the FBI museum in Washington has on display the 38 Colt automatic that Dillinger allegedly had on him the night he died. The serial number on that gun says it wasn't even sold for the first time until five months after Dillinger died. Personally, I would love to confirm this or find out that it's not true, but I've tried looking up pictures of this on uh, online. I cannot find the serial numbers for this gun. So if J. Robert Nash like wants to push that as one of the pieces of evidence, print the damn number so we all can look at it. That's that's my whole thing on that. So I can't confirm that. I can't deny that. We don't actually know. All right. So let's talk about a few of the inconsistencies that the FBI has about how Dillinger died. Um, Melvin Purvis, his side of the story. Uh, let's kind of go over that stuff here for a second before we start getting into the autopsy. So one story that Purvis tells about that night. So on July 23rd, 1934, the day after Dillinger was shot, the Indianapolis Star published the events of that night as told by Purvis. And this is one of the stories that he tells. It says, When Dillinger left the show, he started south, and again passed my car without noticing me. As soon as he had gotten a step past my car... I thrust my right arm out of the car, dropping my hand, and closed it, the prearranged signal for closing in. Instantly, my men appeared from all sides. Dillinger gave one hunted look about him and attempted to run up an alley, where several of my men were waiting. Now, as we know from the first three-part series that we did, and also from the FBI.gov website, this 
is not how they say it happened. (laughs) Now, for those of you with a good memory, he was standing outside. He had lit his cigar. That was the official signal. Not him in his car putting his fucking hand out, closing his fist. Here is from the official FBI.gov website. At 10.30 p.m., Dillinger, with two female companions on either side, walked out of the theater and turned to his left. As they walked past the doorway in which Purvis was standing, Purvis lit a cigar as a signal for the other men to close in. Dillinger quickly realized what was happening and acted by instinct. He grabbed a pistol from his right trouser pocket as he ran toward the alley. Five shots were fired from the guns of three FBI agents. Three of the shots hit Dillinger, and he fell face down on the pavement. And then at 10.50 p.m. on July 22, 1934, John Dillinger was pronounced dead in a little room in the Alexian Brothers Hospital. Now notice how I emphasized a few of those words. Five shots were fired from the guns of three FBI agents. Three of those shots hit Dillinger. So as you can see, not even the FBI and Purvis can get their shit straight. And to be honest with you, with a figure this big, that really, really bothers me. And I know for some of you, you don't think it's a big deal, but... For the FBI to have a different account as what Purvis is telling other people, that should not even be a thing. Like, everybody should be on the same page. And as as you remember from part one, there's a lot of different stories about Martin Zarkovich being involved and because he wanted to be the one who shot Dillinger and this, that, and the other. And the reason I bring this up is because there is a witness who was in the alley that night. This witness was a French dude named Edgar Alamond. Now, we are lucky enough because the FBI and all the authorities told Alamond to do all these glorifying the FBI interviews. And some of them are recorded. He was on camera. He was giving interviews to papers nationwide, okay? His version of events is different than both of those two. Now, what I'm going to play for you, I mean, it's an old clip, all right? This shit is from 1934. It's pretty it's pretty good audio to be honest with you. But it's three separate little interviews where he's basically telling the same story like three times. It's not a very long clip. It's only like 5 or 6 minutes. But I want you to listen to what he says happened because he was out in the alley that night. Check this out. I was at Barth's garage where I am employed as a mechanic during the night time. And as is usual at that hour, I had my lunch. Other people might call it dinner time, but for a nightman in a garage, it's lunchtime. I ate that peacefully, thinking of nothing in particular, least of all of any dangers that might confront one. And uh, it occurred to me that since I had uh, lunch, I might as well get some fresh air with it, as we walk quite a good many cars in the garage, which had been uh, brought in shortly, some for repair, some for storage, and the place uh, was fairly well filled with uh, gasoline vapor. So I figured I'll have a little fresh air. So I walked very leisurely to the main entrance of the garage, looked across the alley, where I had an unobstructed view, since there were no streetcars passing at the time, 
which is, uh, well, near midnight, I might say, and were placed 2424 Lincoln Avenue, Billy Barrow's garage, my employer. He did not expect me to be finished with my work till the next morning. And since I had a little leisure, I took my air very casually, looked across the alley, when I suddenly, in quick succession, heard two rapid shots. A woman screamed, lifting up her dress and saying she was shot, and a man right across from me dropped on the floor. Right then and there. I was horrified. I stood there aghast for a moment. Then I ran for water, thinking someone might be injured, and they might want to have some drink since we are dying. I had no water handy, so I took a sprinkling can. I went with that, but by this time, one of the government officers who had shot, which I later heard was Dillinger, he kept me back with a revolver. I did not know who he was, and I thought at the time that it was just merely one gangster holding up another. So I rushed to the telephone, which was easy for me since we had a public telephone station right there, and I asked for the police department. Before the operator could put me in touch with it, was the rains were already blowing, and the police department came from various places. I saw the blood of Dillinger just as he dropped. It was a gruesome sight. In fact, as he dropped onto the ground, I thought it was just an innocent man who had there spent his mortal life in agony through no fault of his own. Little did I think that as I was standing there and looking at a corpse, that it would be one of the greatest criminals, and might I say, one of the most infamous men which this country has produced. Still there he lay, motionless, his feet crossed over, dead and dying. Never a sound did he utter. He just dropped as cattle would in a slaughterhouse. Only he had a greater fame to himself, a greater name. And I must give great credit to the government agent who shot him, because after all, they were just two quick shots, and they hit the mark infallibly. For I could see the blood gushing through his uh, chest, as well as at the back at the same time. His shirt was bloody on both parts, the back and the front, with the blood oozing all over the street. And Dillinger lay motionless. I was uh, at uh, the uh, garage at uh, Bars, 2424 Lincoln Avenue, I had just my lunch time since I'm by night mechanic there. Then it occurred to me to go to the outside and get some fresh air. Just as I looked across the street and I had an unobstructed view of everything, I looked towards the alley, not a streetcar passed, even automobiles were scarce, and I heard two quick shots in instant succession. A woman screamed. She had been hit in the leg, her left leg, and a man dropped, motionless. And then I heard it was Dillingham. I was surprised. But I must give credit to the government men, because it was a shot which found its mark, and found it quickly. Dillinger had no chance whatever. Just as his victims were gone before, so he had found his own fate at last. I was at Barrow's Garage at 2424 Lincoln Avenue, where I am the night mechanic. I had just lunch. And uh, as there was quite an odor of gasoline, I thought I'll have a little fresh air. So I walked to the main entrance of a garage and leisurely leaned against the wall. I had an unobstructed view, no streetcars in front of me, so I could see everything plain. At the next instant, there were two rapid shots. A woman screamed, and a man fell. Fell like a statue, 
without a single motion whatsoever. He dropped, his shirt was bespattered with blood, front and back. I thought two gangsters were at work, killing each other. So I quickly rushed back into the garage and I got some water, thinking that one of the dying men would want a drink. No, said the man who shot him. I am a government agent. You need not help him anymore. This is or was John Dillinger. So as you can see, there's some differences there. It's pretty interesting. Actually, I was lucky to find that video, and I am so thankful that I did. But anyway, before we get to the autopsy, we are going to take a quick break. Going to play some advertisements. If you don't want to sit through them or take this time to go get yourself another beer, you can always hit the fast-forward button. Three or four minutes, I will meet you right back here. All right, so a lot of the people who say that John Dillinger was not the man who died that night base that on the autopsy report. I mean, among many other things, which we'll talk about in part three. The autopsy report and the heart condition and the autopsy report are what matter, I think, most to a lot of people. That and uh, the inconsistencies with the FBI, I would say. But this is from the Indy Star article, and this is the post-mortem report. Uh, they do have a couple of things that are not right, because after I read this, I found a copy of the, uh, the actual autopsy report. And as much as I love Nash and all the research that he did on this topic for 15 years, there's a couple things he says that are not correct. They are not factual. And that part really, really bothers me. And I'm not putting him down. If he's listening, not putting you down. I'm just saying there are some things that are incorrect with what you're saying to help push this conspiracy narrative when you're referring to the autopsy report. So according to the Indy Star article, the autopsy was performed by Frank J. Walsh, coroner of Cook County, Illinois. He reported Dillinger's height as five foot seven and weighing at about 150 to 160 pounds. It's hard to actually read it to see what number that really is. Here's the deal. There's actually different info on the real coroner's protocol, which is what they called it back then. According to that, the autopsy was performed by Dr. J.J. Kearns. He's the one who performed it. The coroner was Frank J. Walsh. Now, this information about his height and weight corresponds with the information on his 1933 driver's license. Now, like I said, this is according to the Indy Star. I have not seen this driver's license. I honestly didn't even think the fucking guy had one. All right. So anyway, the anatomic diagnosis, multiple, four gunshot wounds, three superficial, two of the face and one of the chest, and one through and through of the face, causing laceration of the soft tissues of the neck, anemia and edema of the brain and lungs. Which uh, I talked to one of my one of my very good friends in the medical field, and she said that was more than likely caused by the actual bullets themselves. Hemorrhagic softening of the myocardium, liver, kidneys, and spleen. Multiple healed scars of the face, chin, and volar surface distal phalanges of the fingers of both hands. That was probably talking about his fingers or fingerprints that were burned off with acid. That, unfortunately, is what the FBI says they identified him with. Healed through and through bullet wound of the left thigh. 
healed scars in the left thigh and leg, color of hair, brown scalp hair, dyed black, and mustache. Color of iris, brown. Color of sclera, gray. The hair and eyes also correspond with his driver's license. His stomach contents indicated his last meal consisted of particles of red peppers and fragments of meat and vegetables. Dillinger was transferred from the Chicago morgue in a wicker basket wrapped in a sheet. Ray McCready, the Mooresville undertaker who embalmed Dillinger's body, sharply criticized the Chicago coroner's office of mutilating the corpse. He reported that Dillinger's tongue had been removed and long slits had been made down the front and back of his body. McCready also noted that a death mask made by Professor A.E. Ashworth of the Warsham College of Embalming in Chicago had removed much of the facial skin and hair on Dillinger's face. After Dillinger's body got to his sister's house, which would have been Audrey's house, he was dressed for his funeral in his brand new herringbone gray suit, stiff white collar, and a gray tie with white spots. And that was uh, courtesy of the Indianapolis Star. Now, here's what they don't tell you about the morgue that night. It was absolute fucking chaos. Because we have to think, Dillinger was the most wanted man on the planet. He was more famous than movie stars. And I know you guys think I'm embellishing. Do the research. Trust me, man. This guy was fucking famous. So when he got shot, this place was absolute chaos. All the politicians and their friends were all crowded into the morgue. Now, I know Nash in both of his books talk about how there were 20 students. There were two physicians there. Here's the deal. Never ever heard where any of these students were from, what college they attended, anything like that. No names, nothing. But what we do know is that there were a shitload of politicians and all their friends were in there. And the reason we know that is because the deputy coroner was taking fucking bribes to allow all these people in there. He actually took bribes so that the death masks could be made. Now, like I stated in part one as well, the autopsy disappeared for 50 years and wasn't found until 1984. J. Robert Nash attributes this to the fact that because of his book, uh, somebody just under mysterious circumstances happened to pop up with it because they were hiding it or they knew where it was or they found it. What more than likely happened is after his book was published, they actually realized that the fucking autopsy report was missing and they went sifting through some old fucking files and bags and eventually found it. That's more than likely what happened because an administrative assistant named Chris Morris was rummaging through some old files and accidentally found it in a shopping bag stuffed in the corner of the old county morgue. And that is how that fucking came about. Now, those of you who do want to sit through the autopsy report, you're more than welcome to. If not, you can fast forward for, I don't know, probably five or ten minutes or so, because uh, I always usually give my uh, social media information, and I have some live show updates as well coming this summer. So, all right, this is the, uh, the official autopsy report, and let's see what this bad boy says. Coroner's Protocol. Frank J. Walsh, Coroner, Cook County, Illinois. Number 116 of July, <laughs> John Dillinger, 
Date of death, 7-22-34. Address unknown. Date of exam, 7-23-34. Coroner's physician, J.J. Kearns. Sex, male, age 33. Length, 5 foot 7 inches. Weight, 160 pounds. Race, white. Nationality, American. Exam is at the Cook County Morgue. Autopsy performed by J.J. Kearns, M.D. Signature of identifier, Cook County Morgue Records. History of cause of death, gunshot, removed from sidewalk at 2450 Lincoln Avenue, 37th District Police. Anatomic diagnosis, multiple, four, which would be the gunshot wounds, three superficial, two of the face, and one of the chest, and one through and through of the face, causing laceration of the soft tissues of the neck, continued fractures of the lateral process of the third and second and first cervical vertebrae, and body of the second cervical vertebrae, laceration of the vertebral artery and vein, lower portion of the medulla oblongata and spinal cord to the level of the fifth cervical segment. Anemia and edema of the brain and lungs. Hemorrhagic softening of the myocardium, liver, kidneys, and spleen. Multiple healed scars of the face, chin, and volar surface. Distal phalanges of the fingers of both hands. Healed through and through bullet wound of the left thigh. Healed scars in the left thigh and leg. Rheumatic mitral partly stenosing varicose endocarditis eccentric hypotrophy of the myocardium and i know this sounds like i'm having a hard time pronouncing these words which is part of it but you got to understand this is also a super copied version of a autopsy report from 19 fucking 34 so give me a break all right all right so the external examination inspection development of skeleton medium musculature well developed Skin color white, edema, none, pigmentation, none, bed sores, none, signs of death, body heat absent, lividity, dorsal, rigor mortis, present, cornea, turbid and cloudy, shrunk and dry and cloudy, putrefaction, none, color of hair, brown scalp hair, and mustache, both dyed black, size of pupils, dilated, color virus, brown, color of sclera, gray. Size and shape of neck, medium. Size and shape of thorax, symmetric. Abdomen was flat. Oh, Johnny boy was in good shape. Okay, uh, evidences of external injury with description. There were two superficial gutter-like abrasions of the skin, such as a bullet wound make. Number one, adjacent to the outer angle of the left eye. Number two, in the cheek over the zygoma on the left side. Number three, Bullet wound of entrance at the level of the sixth cervical vertebrae, five centimeters to the right of the medline. This bullet passed upward in the neck, causing laceration of the soft tissues. Fractures of the lateral processes of the third, second, first cervical vertebrae. Fracture of the body of the second cervical vertebrae. Laceration of the vertebral artery and vein. Laceration of the meningus of the spinal cord posterior lateral anterior tracts from the level of the fourth through the medulla oblongata on the right side from here the bullet passed upward along the posterolateral pharynx causing hemorrhage around the internal jugular and internal carotid arteries leaving through an open in the lower lid of the right eye as its outer angle 
there was an extensive subperiosteal hemorrhage from the level of the jugular foramen to the sixth cervical vertebrae in the spinal canal. The spinal canal contained clotted and fluid blood. Number four, bullet wound of entrance in the midclavicular line over the seventh costal interspace. This bullet passed superficially, leaving through an opening in the mid-axillary line over the eighth rib on the left side. There were superficial abrasions of the skin, of the nose and face. There were healed scars in the chin, oblique in direction, two centimeters on either side of the midline. There were healed vertical scars over the temporomandibular joint, three centimeters long on either side. There was a purple-red area in the skin, two and a half centimeters square, over the sternum of the level of the seventh costal cartilage just to the right of the midline. This was covered with a thin parchment-like membrane. There were roughly circular scars in the skin up to one centimeter in diameter in the middle of the volar surface of the distal phalanges of the fingers of both hands. There was a linear scar 10 centimeters long in the left thigh, anterolateral aspect lower third. There was a healed semilunar scar on the anteromedial aspect calf of the left leg. There was a wound such as a bullet wound of entrance and exit would make the former at the junction of the middle and lower thirds anterolateral aspect, the latter in the posterolateral aspect slightly above the wound of entrance in the left thigh. There was a healed wound in the neck roughly circular in outline one centimeter in diameter posterior aspect two centimeters to the left of the midline at the level of the seventh cervical vertebrae. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I'm just going to give a fucking shout out to you nurses and doctors out there, because you guys literally have to remember fucking words like this. And to be honest with you, it sounds like fucking gibberish. Why couldn't they just call shit like regular shit, you know what I mean? Anyway, the head, the scalp, cranial bones, and meningus showed no traumatic changes. The brain on multiple surfaces made by cutting was pale. The lower portion of the medulla oblongata and the spinal cord to the level of the fifth cervical segment was studded with petechial and ecchymotic hemorrhages. The neck. The soft tissues of the neck, including the mucous membrane of the buccal cavity, esophagus, pharynx, and larynx, were pale. Chest. The lungs were subcrepitant and on surfaces made by cutting covered with pale, bloody, frothy fluid. The trachea and bronchi contained bloody, frothy fluid. The tracheobronchial lymph nodes were soft and anthracotic. And here's the one that we're going to be talking about in part three. And yes, I actually got more than one opinion on this, going to have more than one interview, so we'll have a little bit, you know, more than one opinion on this. So, the heart... The pericardial sac contained straw-colored fluid. The myocardium was thickened, pale, and soft. The mitral leaflets were thickened. The commissures partly obliterated. And to be honest with you, the only reason I can't really say that word is because it's kind of meshed together on the autopsy report. The cords, tendinae, and papillary muscles were thickened. There were pinpoint to pinhead-sized semi-firm warty vegetations on the auricular surface of the free margins of the mitral leaflets. The intima of the aorta and coronary arteries contained a few atheromatous plaques. 
Then we get to the abdomen. The abdominal surfaces were smooth and dry. The liver, kidneys, and spleen were pale, soft. The markings were indistinct. The gallbladder and biliary passages were patent. The adrenals, pancreas, and lower genitourinary tract were not remarkable. The stomach contained a partly digested meal consisting of particles of red peppers and fragments of meat and vegetables. And that is the autopsy report. Obviously, it's not that great. I'm 100% sure this shit was rushed. But like I had mentioned before we started reading some of this stuff, one of the huge arguments that this was not John Dillinger and it was a guy named Jimmy Lawrence is the details of the heart. So what I did, I reached out to some people, and in part three, they're going to be on. We're going to do some interviews. I wanted to find out, one, is this a condition that this person was born with? Is it something that developed? Is it something that was caused by something? And then uh, could a 31-year-old man who played semi-professional baseball, even while he was still in prison, I mean, he was still good enough and active enough in prison playing semi-pro ball that he was getting scouted by major league teams in prison, all right? (laughs) So could he have been that active? Could he have been jumping all these teller gates during bank robberies and running all over the place and being super, super fucking active with these conditions? That's what I want to know because the naysayers say this guy on the table that got cut open and shot at the biograph that night was terminal. He was going to fucking die very quickly, and that's basically why this guy Jimmy Lawrence kind of either volunteered to step in or, unbeknownst to him, got set up. Either way, that's the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about in part three, which will be out by the end of the month, and the reason we know it will be is because per my network agreement, I have to have two episodes a month, (laughs) and uh, this is the first one, so the second one will be out by the end of the month, hopefully Saturday night after I wrap up the interviews and stuff like that, so... All right, ways you can get a hold of me, you can always email me, justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, at PodcastMC. Really, honestly, not on Twitter all that much, not a huge fan of it. I'm probably on Instagram more than anything. You can follow me there, at Mysterious underscore podcast. You can stop by and like the Facebook page. You can join the Facebook group if you want. Uh, If you join the group, just please answer the questions. Otherwise, uh, the admins will not let you in, as it is what it is. Um, Other than that, I think that's about it. Yeah, we got a live show. Live show uh, announcement here. We're going to be in Louisville, Kentucky on April 23rd. Where you can find links to that is pretty much all over social media. Literally everywhere. Or you can just email me and ask me. Uh, It's going to be me, Ohio, and Hillbilly Horror Stories going to be a great great time it's going to be in louisville like i said Uh, i'm not sure what i'm going to do an episode on obviously i usually wait until like the week before to decide but yeah you can come visit us get tickets i think tickets are 20 bucks i usually host an after party at a local bar somewhere close by after the live shows it's always a good time so yeah we also have the cruise that we're going to do a live show on in september everybody's got to be paid up. You got to get them tickets by July. Uh, We have sold a fuckload of cabins for that thing as well. Surprisingly fairly cheap. The more people you put in each cabin, the cheaper it's going to be for everybody. So grab one, two, three, or your friends, you know what I mean? Get it that way. Best way to do it. Uh, I will 
post those. Those are all in the group. Everybody's already seen those. Um, I can post them on Facebook if you want information on them. You can also go to Hillbilly Horror Stories, or you can look at the podcast description. I have all those posted there and links to them. Also going to be at CrimeCon the last week of April. So that should be a good time, I guess. Other than that, got a big paranormal hunt in Indiana, actually just outside of Indianapolis at the Indiana State Mental Hospital or some shit. I don't know. I'll have a link for it, like I said, in the podcast description. Not in the episode, in the podcast description. Like I said, I'll put all the links to stuff there. But anyway, that's really all I got for you. I know this episode didn't seem like very long. It's a lot of fucking information and looking around, though. I can tell you right now, part three is going to be significantly longer because we're going to do those interviews. Like I said, I like having more than one opinion, especially when it comes to medical aspects and especially when it's something that people are harping on to be one of the huge major pieces of evidence that this man killed at the biograph was not John Dillinger. And we're also going to talk about how he might have gotten away, how he lived, where he lived. Supposedly, he had few kids and stuff like that. So we'll talk about that as well and then kind of go from there. So after John Dillinger, I don't know, I kind of want to do a museum heist episode. I know on Facebook I got... um, a request to do uh, the Gardner Museum heist, and I started looking into it, and it's actually pretty awesome. So probably going to do an episode on that. Also have a couple other episodes coming up, uh, cases you probably haven't heard of. Uh, that's what I like to do. I don't like to beat the dead, beat the dead horse, so to speak. No pun intended. But yeah, I uh, I haven't really looked at reviews, to be honest with you. I kind of just haven't really cared to. So if you have left a fucking nice review... I'm just going to say I thank you very, very much. It is greatly appreciated. Uh, If you've left a bad review, then, you know, that still bumps the algorithm and helps other people find my podcast. So I guess maybe I should say thanks as well. I don't know, but thank you all very much. And I will see you on part three here by the end of the month. (laughs) 